0: Hebrews chapter number 13 tonight, and it begins very simply in verse 1 by saying, Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Now, I want to pause there, and I know we've not read much scripture, but if you'll look at your notes, you'll see that what... Uh, The first 17 verses of chapter 13 are, is really a catalog of Christian qualities that love should produce in us. It's actually interesting, (coughs) because when you look at the last three grand themes of uh, the book of Hebrews, you find that beautiful trinity that Paul spoke about in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. You'll find in chapter 11 that uh, the walk of faith is uh, spoken of. In uh, chapter number 12, you'll find the wisdom of hope referenced, and we teach about, taught about that last week and the value and power of hope. And let me just remind you once again that <coughs> though today hope is deemed as, as an impotent and weak ideal, we, when we say hope, so oftentimes what we're really talking about when we say hope is we're talking about doubt. Uh, like, for instance, if you were to say, you know, is Brother Toby going to let us out of here on time tonight? And uh, you say, well, I hope so. <laughs> what you're really saying is, well, I doubt it, you know. Um, and so we've really, it's an interesting thing we've done linguistically in exchanging the ideas of hope and doubt. But when you place that in a negative relief and you consider, for instance, a doctor walks into a room to give a prognosis, uh, everything hinges on whether he says there is hope or there is no hope. And then all of a sudden in that economy, hope has a lot of value. And so chapter 12 deals with the idea of hope and what it means to us. And then God wraps things up in chapter 13 with the idea of love. Uh, listen, we we can have all manner of gifts and knowledge and wisdom, all sorts of ability and talent. And I found this to be true in ministry. I got a call from somebody today uh, that was asking me, uh, a church in town, uh, pastor resigned. And, uh, they're without a pastor right now and asked me, said, preacher, do you know anybody? And uh, I said, well, not, not anybody that I'd hook my name to. Amen. <laughs> but, uh, said, you know, do you, and I say that because I try to stay away, stay out of that stuff. I just, it's all I can do to keep my place from imploding. Amen. Let alone somebody else's. But they were asking me about that. And, um, you know, I've seen so many young preachers and oftentimes seasoned preachers with talent and ability, with, uh, knowledge, with charisma, with every gift that you could ask for, fall by the wayside. And oftentimes it's because this one simple principle in all that they had, they lacked love, love for God, love for their people, love for the work of God. Listen, you can have all those things, but if it's without love, if it's without charity, it's but sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. And so it should be no surprise to us that after driving home one of the most profound and vivid and rich theological discourses in all of the inspired Word of God, that we'd find ourselves in chapter 13 with this simple word, let brotherly love continue. If what we do is not based in love, love for Christ, the love of Christ, then it's all to no avail. God's not interested in it. It it, it merits no value in God's economy. And so what we have in the first 17 verses is the way of love laid forth to us. Love for the brethren, love for God, love for the work of God. And there is a catalog of what that will mean. And in verse number one, we are reminded of Christian compassion in the first three verses that we've read. We are to have compassion in the way that we deal with one another. Now, this was especially important for these first century Jews. And here's why. Because it would have been real easy for them to say, I need to look after me and mine, and I don't care what happens to anybody else. Remember the hostile environment that they are living within. Uh, I told you earlier on as we talked through the series that it's not uncommon in households that are uh, Jewish and Orthodox in their Judaism that if a person was to uh, renounce Judaism and turn from that to some other way, certainly uh, Christianity, and especially in this time period, would have been probably more of a hostile uh, environment and idea to them that it wasn't uncommon for a Jewish family to go and to bury an empty casket or to buy and seal an empty sepulcher and uh to do that in honor of that loved one that in their mind was dead to them and if they'd see him on the street they were to not even acknowledge them. We have this same ideal uh in John chapter 9 and I don't want I preached out of John chapter number 9 last night so I've tried real hard to keep myself from preaching from it again tonight because it's on my mind. But in John chapter number 9 there's a blind man blind from birth that's healed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Pharisees begin to question him and question his parents uh, to try to figure out what's going on. His parents don't even want to acknowledge what has happened. Uh, they, They say, they ask his parents, is this your son that was blind from his birth and what happened to him? And they said, he's a grown man, let him answer for himself. They were so fearful of the Sanhedrin. And uh, the fellow says to them, he says, look, they ask him, they say, was this man Jesus, was he a sinner because he did this on the Sabbath day? And he says, whether he be a sinner or no, I, I know not. But one thing I know, I once was blind and now I can see. He changed my life. Uh, he made me a new creature. And the Bible says that they looked at him and they uh, say to him, who are you to lecture us? I'm paraphrasing, but they say, who are you to lecture us? Uh, we're the disciples of Moses. You're born in sin. And the Bible says they cast him out. They cast him out of the temple. This is what these individuals were risking, being thrown out from their family, thrown out from the synagogue, thrown out from their friends, thrown out from their way of life. This was the sacrifice that was laid before him. And this is why Paul urges so fervently for them to press on, to continue on, to hold fast, because there was a grand temptation to step backwards. But also within this framework, there was a grand temptation for them to be quiet about their profession that they had made in Christ. So he points to three groups of people they need to have compassion on and not be ashamed of. He says, first off, they need to have compassion to the saints. Let brotherly love continue. That's interesting to me because this is a general epistle. And what that means is it's not written to one distinct body of people or or group of people, but it's written to a class of people. This is written to Jewish individuals in the first century. And so, in other words, he's not looking at a church that's very loving and saying, keep loving people. He's talking to people he doesn't even know, and he says, let brotherly love continue. You know why? Because whenever we're born again, the Holy Ghost of God sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts, and He births within us a heart for God's people. One of the distinctive markers, both in our own lives and towards the world, that we are a child of God is that we love the brethren. In fact, uh, the Lord said that uh, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. Not through your miracles, not through your sermons, not through your mighty works, not through your fervence, not through your dependency or your faithfulness, but your love for one another is going to be the distinguishing factor in this world. And of course, John would later on emphasize this in 1 John when he would talk about how we know uh, that we belong to God is because we love the brethren. So he says we ought to love the saints of God. It's not always easy. I know it's not. Let me tell you something, I'm not a lovable person all the time. In fact, if you ask the right people, I'm never a lovable person. Uh, but we don't love people because they're lovely or lovable. We love people because God loves them, Christ loves them, and because God loves us. And it's not that we owe them our love, it's that we owe God our love. And He directs that love towards saints, towards the children of God, and of course, towards sinners as well. Verse number two, everybody loves this verse. This is a controversial verse. No telling how many Guideposts and Reader's Digest articles are based on this verse right here. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And he says we ought to show compassion to strangers. Now, the question that everybody likes to focus on is who are the angels? Some people say that angels mean a heavenly celestial being. Some people say that the word angel, and of course we do know this is true, that the word angel is synonymous with minister. In fact, we know that whenever John talked about uh, the letters that were written to the angels of the seven churches, we believe most commonly, at least, and I believe this, that it wasn't a guardian angel over those churches. Uh, if God wanted to talk to them, He didn't have to write them a letter. Amen? He was talking about the pastors of those churches, the ministers of those churches. If you want to ask my opinion, I believe that's probably what Paul means when he says this. Although there is scriptural precedent. Uh, We find in Genesis 18 that three men come by Abraham's tent door and he prepares a meal for him. And it's actually interesting because in uh, verse number 2, the Bible says three men come by his tent door. And when he references him in verse 3, he calls him, he says, my Lord. And when he says that, it's not Lord as in Jehovah, but it's Lord as in a formal title. Uh, in other words, he, it's like he's calling a master. It's like he's making himself their servants. And that's what he does. He says, anything that you want, I'll provide for you. This was common courtesy in Oriental culture. But then down in verse number 13, the Bible says, The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah said unto him. It becomes apparent by the end of the chapter that Abraham wasn't just entertaining angels. He was entertaining the God of glory and he had no idea when it all started off. Listen, I don't know exactly whether you'll ever entertain angels or not. Uh, In my experience, angels are not necessarily here to interfere with the world, but they are here to minister to believers, and so I tend to believe that uh, you wouldn't entertain them unawares if you were going to entertain them at all. But one thing that we know is this, the emphasis is not about the angels or preachers or pastors or celestial beings, but it's about strangers. We ought to have compassion on people that we don't know. That's hard to do in this world. We live in a politicized world, a polarized world, where it's easy to hate everybody. Uh, You know, uh, society has been reduced to two groups of people standing on either side of a line drawn in the sand and throwing rocks at each other. And it's so easy. It's a drug. I'm telling you, it's a drug to live life that way. But what's hard to do and what is Christ-like to do is look at people that have no reason, they have no rightful claim on your compassion but to love them anyway to love them anyway. He says we ought to show compassion to strangers. Then verse 3, he says we ought to show compassion to sufferers. He says, remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Now, this was of particular import to these Jewish individuals because no doubt there were plenty of people that Paul himself at one time had been guilty of throwing in jail for professing the name of Christ. This was no idle exhortation. There were literally people in jail when Paul pinned this down for the name of Christ. And how easy it would have been for them to forget about him, to ignore him, to distance themselves from him. Let me tell you something. Somebody suffering for the cause of Christ, that ought to be the people we're proud to associate with. Uh, you know, the Bible talked about, uh, Onesiphorus Paul spoke about him and said, he was not ashamed of my chain. In other words, Paul said he wasn't ashamed to identify with me when it wasn't easy to identify with me. And let me say that in this day that we live in, though certainly I don't want to liken the cultural pressures that we face to prison, because it's not the same. Ain't none of us suffered like so many early New Testament saints suffered. There might come a day, but we aren't suffering like that right now. It it does cost you something culturally and and societally to name the name of Christ. How many churches build their entire culture of ministry around trying to distance themselves from biblical Christianity and embrace the precepts and culture of the world? That's the wrong direction, brethren. You're going in the wrong direction. Those suffering for the name of Christ, we ought not try to shy away. We ought to try to scoot up close to them. God counts them as valuable and is precious. We see Christian compassion in the first three verses. Christian chastity is spoken, of, chastity is spoken of in verse number four. The Bible says, "Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge." Now, obviously, the importance of this verse is is not lost. I don't think on anybody. I mean, of course, we live in a day where this is not so. Of course, we as believers ought to hold marriage as a holy thing, and uh, we ought to treat it that way. But the question I'd have is, why did he write this? I've told you throughout the whole study that we need to constantly bring before our minds everything in the Word of God. Not that we question its place there, but we ask ourselves, why did God say this? Why in the midst of this exhortation about standing for God and standing with those that are suffering, would all of a sudden, right in the middle of it, this verse about marriage and the sanctity of it be included? I'll tell you why I believe. Because uh, the idea of monogamy was a Judeo-Christian principle. They're living in Roman culture, uh, in a decadent culture, where the idea of polygamy is as common as, you know, the rain is. And I believe that what he's telling them is this. Listen, as you depart from the fold of Judaism, and the way gets tough and the road gets tough, don't go into lurid activity. Don't move away from biblical holiness, but embrace that which is chaste and honorable in the eyes of God. Now, how many people are there in this world that use their liberty for a cloak of maliciousness? And they'll live any old way they want, and they'll say, well, that's okay, it's under grace, it's under grace. Let me tell you what's under grace, the things we've repented of. That's what's under grace. I wasn't under God's grace till I repented of my sin and turned to Christ. So we have no reason to believe that... Ill and ungodly behavior, oh, well, it's under grace. Now, I'm not saying a person, if they live in sin and they're saved, that they're going to lose their salvation. But I am saying this, that you can't just cry grace every time you walk head on into sin. It will affect your relationship and walk with God. Christian chastity is spoken of. Verse 5, one of my favorite verses in all the Word of God, Christian contentment is referenced. It says, let your conversation be without covetousness. Now, we understand that the word conversation in the Bible does not necessarily mean the dialogue that we engage in with other people, but it means our lifestyle. And what he's saying is this, live life content. Now, what is the basis of our contentment? Is it that we have everything we need? No. Although we certainly do have everything we need. If you're like me, i got more stuff. I I don't just have what I need in my house. I have so much junk that nobody needs that I don't know what to do with it. But that's not the basis of my contentment. Paul would write about contentment in the book of Philippians uh, while he's sitting in a jail cell uh, without any creature comfort whatsoever and probably without a lot of things that we claim we need to survive in life. And he says this, he says, listen, godliness with contentment, it's great gain. He says, I've learned whatsoever state I'm in there with to be content. I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to abound. I've learned how to have. I've learned how to have not. And it's all based upon this principle. He says, be content with such things as ye have for. So in other words, be content, and this is why. He hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. There was a lot of things they would forsake as they departed the fold of Judaism but he wanted to remind them that God would never forsake them. And so there's no cost that God could ask of them that would be too much. We, in this day of soft cultural Christianity, of shallow cultural Christianity, we spend a lot of time apologizing for how much God requires of people. Listen, every time we get something together at church, listen, it's a sacrifice. I know it's going to take time. Listen, you ought to make a sacrifice. You There ain't never been anything I've sacrificed for God. The implication of sacrifice is that I have less than I started with. Here's the truth of the matter. When I started this thing out, I was broken, lost, bankrupt, and on my way to hell. There's nothing I can give God that's truly a sacrifice. We spend a lot of time trying to make Bible Christianity easy and comfortable and without any sort of hardship, and that's completely opposite to the way that Christ approached discipleship. Every time He spoke of discipleship, He didn't try to make it easy. He tried to make it as hard as He could. He said, listen, it's going going to cost you something if you're going to live for me. If you're going to walk with me. uh, Listen, it's not about crowns, and it's not about applause. It's about crosses. So you better be ready to take one up and follow me. And so oftentimes, we spend all of our time apologizing for what God expects out of people. We will not spend our time doing that. I think that's part of the reason that the church has lost respect in our culture that we live in. Uh, Listen, there's no doubt that when something is seen as hard and not everybody can do it, and I'm glad anybody can be saved, Uh, It doesn't matter who they are, they can be saved. And we don't get saved by trying hard. But it ought to be something that when we're a part of a local body, uh, that it doesn't just affect our life, it becomes the central focal point of our life. And it becomes the very thing that our life is all about. You know why? Because that's what Christ's life was all about. You might say, well, preacher, the church wasn't around when he lived. No, but that's why he died. He loved the church and he gave himself for it. We ought to be content just to know we've got the presence of God with us. Because in having the presence of God experientially through the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, we have something that no Old Testament saint ever experienced. We have nothing to complain about. He speaks of Christian contentment. Verse 6, he speaks of Christian courage. He says, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. You know what a lack of contentment breeds? It breeds cowardice. When we're content with God and Him alone, there's nothing the world can take from us to stop us. You know, our problem is we're too attached. Uh, we're supposed to be a tent-dwelling people, and we've poured footers. And now we're, as we walk through this world, we're terrified we're going to lose something. Terrified we're going to lose a job if we give a testimony. Terrified we're going to uh, lose, uh, you know, uh, uh, a moment of, of comfort if we make the, the, I don't want to say sacrifice, I just got through preaching on it, but if we make the time to be in the house of God. We're always scared we're going to lose something, scared we're going to lose a friend if we speak out for Christ. Here's the reality. If God is on our side, that breeds boldness in our life. When we know God will never leave us nor forsake us and that our contentment is not dependent upon the world's treasures and pleasures, but it's dependent on the presence and holiness of God, then there's nothing the world can do to us. You see this example over and over and over and over again in Fox's Book of Martyrs where the world would try to take everything dear to a Christian, but there's one thing they couldn't take. They couldn't take their salvation. And when that's what matters to you, your walk with God, then you've hitched yourself to something the world cannot touch. And your joy, Christ said, no man can take. It breeds boldness. And we ought to be a bold people for the Lord. Verse number 7, he deals with Christian consecration. Now, everybody buckle up. Nobody likes these verses The Bible says, remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. Now, I'm not going to spend some time preaching about pastoral authority here because I found this to be true. People either respect the position of the pastor or they don't. And no amount of fussing the pastor does is going to breed or or, or create any kind of respect people have. But I do want you to notice two things he exhorts all of us to do. Notice, first off, we ought to consider what they have taught us. The first part of the verse says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. I hope that, and I believe this to be true, that my status as a man of God is directly connected to the level at which I handle and preach and teach the word of God. I don't ever want much to be made out of me, but I do want much to be made out of the ministry only because we make much out of the Word of God, and the Word of God is the centerpiece of the ministry. And in as much as we do that, we ought to have a holy reverence for the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. It ought to be vital to us. Here's the truth. You know this, and I know this. It does not surprise me that we're managed to, to fit Apollo's course in this gymnasium. But we know that were things to be the way that they should be, then it'd be things like Apollo's course and things like Wednesday night prayer meeting and things like Sunday school that we ought to be trying to find places to park people and not things like homecomings and chili cook-offs and all those things we all love and enjoy. The truth is the thing we ought to value more than anything is the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. I want that to be the centerpiece of our church. Listen, I love singing. God bless good singing. Singing is scriptural, it's biblical, it's integral to the local New Testament church. But singing ought not be the centerpiece. I'm for fellowship. And when I say fellowship, I I spell it F-O-O-D, amen, food. That's biblical. The local New Testament church broke bread daily, spent time together. That's biblical. We ought not relegate it to a second tier of church importance. But fellowship is not the centerpiece. I like a good shouting service. Man, it don't bother me. Uh, It don't bother me. Uh, You know, Paul talked about this. He said, listen, if we be sober, it's for your sakes. But if we be beside ourselves, it's unto God. It didn't bother Paul for things to get out of the banks. Man, I love a good shouting service. I love rejoicing. I love testimonies. But the centerpiece of every local New Testament church ought to be the Word of God. It ought to be the thing that we gather around. It's the bread of life. It ain't the cupcakes. It's the bread of life. It ain't the singing. I love singing, but it ain't the bread of life. The Word of God is the bread of life. We ought to have consideration for what they've taught. Then notice, we ought to have consideration for what they've wrought. He says, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Now, here's what I believe he's saying when he says follow. I don't believe he's saying you ought to pick a man of God and try to be like him. I don't believe that's what he's saying. I've seen a lot of preachers get shipwrecked, uh, you know, by, by trying to snort like Jack Howells or, or trying to, you know, uh, get up and tell jokes and sing like Billy Kelly or, uh, you know, uh, try to get up and have a 15-minute message like Lee Robertson or whatever it might be and wind up in the gutter. Listen, I think you ought to be yourself. God created you the way He created you, and God will use you, not in uh, sometimes in spite of you, but not in spite of your personality, but because of it, because He blessed you and created you with that. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is you follow it like you would follow a road on a map, or like you would follow a line of logic in an argument, or like you would follow the line of arithmetic to a, uh, the answer to a math problem. He's saying follow their conversation, their lifestyle follow the way that they've lived, and consider the end of their conversation. doesn't so much matter how a man starts out in life. What matters is how he ends. And what we ought to do is look at how people are living and ask ourselves, where has it brought them? Now, I I can say this without any risk of of braggadocio, because I'm a young man. Uh, You don't know what my end will be. I hope by the grace of God to end well. But I can certainly look at older men of God in my life and I can look at their life, and they weren't perfect, and they made mistakes, and they probably did some things wrong, but so many of them that finished well. I want to finish well. And to these Jewish individuals, he's saying, listen, you ought to want to finish well. You've begun well, but you ought to try to finish well. Notice in verse 8, he segues into a word about Christian consistency, because after all, consistency is what wins the race, right? listen, it's not the hare that runs fast, it's the tortoise that runs steady. And so he reminds us, that we have a a consistent foundation upon which to base our lives. He says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. By the way, I believe that every every single thing in my Bible is exactly how it ought to be. But I believe we can consider how it would change things if we were to put a colon at the end of verse 7. I believe that the reason he brings this up is because their life was what it was. It was consistent because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Listen, culture changes. Society changes. Methods, and people don't like to hear this, but it is the truth. Methods change. But the Word of God and the means whereby we accomplish ministry, meaning spiritually speaking, never change. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. The way we're consistent is we walk with Christ. Because he's consistent. He ain't going to quit. So if you walk close to him, you'll finish well. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He speaks about Christian conviction in verse number 9. It says, Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. You may not be familiar with that word divers. It's not the first time it's appeared in the book of Hebrews. But I bet if you stuck an E at the end of it, it would make sense to you. Diverse. And that is what it means. It means different. Be not carried away with different, with divers and strange doctrines doctrines. Boy, we got a bad problem with that in this day that we live in. Uh you know, every uh, it's amazing to me all the books people write of all the secret hidden doctrines that nobody knew about. Man, they found a secret code in the Bible that if you skip every 7th letter and couple it with every 3rd letter and divide it by 3 and uh split the difference and uh you know, you'll come up with all kinds of secret answers. And uh you know, you'll find out where they buried Jimmy Hoffa and uh, you'll find out who shot Kennedy and everything else. Here's the truth. There's nothing new under the sun. If it's new, it's probably not true. And if it's true, it's probably not new. I heard a quote the other day I thought was interesting. Somebody was talking about news. He said, there's no new news. It's just old news happening to new people. And the truth is, it's easy to chase after every new thing. But consistency in the Christian life is based upon that principle in chapter 8. Remember, Jesus Christ is the Word of God. So if he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the Word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's not chase after pet doctrines and strange and new doctrines. He said, It's a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats. What did he mean when he said meats? He's speaking about the Old Testament law. In the Old Testament law, there were two types of sacrifices primarily. There were a lot of variations on them, but there were two categories of sacrifices. In the book of Leviticus, you have the five basic sacrifices laid out. Uh, for the Hebrew worshiper. And of those, there are two categories. There's a sin offering, and then there is a sweet savor offering. And the sin offering was if a person had sinned and they needed to approach unto God, they needed atonement. The sweet savor offering was if a person was coming as a worshiper before God. And whenever they would give the sweet savor offerings, oftentimes the priest would be permitted to partake in the meat that had been sacrificed afterwards, and they'd have a feast based upon that, Communion with God that the worshiper had had. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, the heart is not settled through ceremony. It's settled through the Spirit of God. It's not ritual that settles our hearts. It's communion that settles our hearts. And so there's not going to be some new special ceremony or rite or ritual or doctrine that comes out that is all of a sudden going to fix your problems. The answer to your problems are in this book. They have always been in this book, and they will always be in this book. This is where you'll find the source of peace. He said, it's good that they be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Now, in verses 10 through 14, we have a, it's not a parenthetical passage, but we have something that sort of shifts and expands on this idea of the sacrifice. I want to read all four of these verses, five of these verses, and then go back and explain them. He says in verse 10, we have an altar, whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest, notice these two words, for sin, are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto Him without the camp, bearing His reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. We said a word about communion when we talked about verse number 10. And he expands on the idea of Christian communion here. And he sets forth first off the principle for communion in verses 10 through 12. He says, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Let's pause and explain this. I said a moment ago there are two categories of sacrifice in the Old Testament primarily. Primarily. And uh, the sweet savor offering that was given as a worshiper approaching unto God, in other words, not in atonement for sin, but merely to commune with God, they could partake in. Here's the problem. Jesus was a sweet savor unto God. In fact, we preached on it last night in the book of Ephesians, how that we ought to uh, love one another as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us an offering and a sweet-smelling savor unto God. Certainly, He is the means whereby we approach to worship the Lord. But He wasn't just a sweet savor offering. He was also a sin offering. He was made sin for us, Paul said, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And there was a different method prescribed for a sin offering. When a sin offering was given, the person who had sinned would bring the offering to the high priest. The high priest would, uh, would examine the offering to make sure it was fit. And then the worshiper would, uh, or the approacher would uh, put their hand over the head of that animal and pronounce their own sins over its head, imputing their wickedness unto that animal. And then it was not the priest's responsibility. It was the person that had sin's responsibility to take the knife and to draw it across the throat of uh, the animal. You say, why is that distinction important? Because priests never got anyone to God. They did intercede. But the priest had no magical power to be a go-between between man and God. The only exception to this was when he, as the federal head of the nation of Israel on the Day of Atonement, offered a sacrifice for the whole nation. But inasmuch as they approached on a daily basis to make atonement for their sin, the priest wasn't no more holy than they were. He had to make sacrifices for his sin just like they had to make sacrifices for their sin. Now, why does this matter? Well, in a day when folks believe that in order to get to God, you have to go into a little cubicle and tell all your darkest secrets to a man, and he's going to somehow give you a little uh, you know, laundry list of prayers and Hail Marys you ought to make, and then you're okay with God, there is no basis for that in Scripture. There is no foundation for that. that's a perversion of the priesthood. Uh, that, that was never the reality uh, in the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. So it was his responsibility to kill that sacrifice. Then the body of that beast would be taken by the priest and flayed and prepared to be brought unto God. After it was uh, brought, the blood was given and the sacrifice was presented before God, the body of that beast would be taken without the camp and burned as unclean. In other words, the blood had been shed, the sin had been placed on the beast, and it would be taken outside the camp to an unclean place to be burned. Now remember, whenever Jesus walked this earth, uh, there was no camp because they weren't a tent-dwelling people anymore. And so for the Jewish people, they didn't have a tabernacle, they had a temple. They didn't have a camp, but they had Jerusalem. And so the function that they had, the way that they would perform this, is whenever sacrifice would be given, they would take the body of that beast and take it outside of the gate and burn it there. Listen, it's no accident that Jesus was crucified at a hill called Mount Calvary outside of the city. He was made sin for us, and He was taken outside as unclean. Now, here's the truth that He's trying to convey. And I'm actually just going to depart from this section of the notes and explain it uh, the way that God presses on my heart. Uh, here's what he's trying to tell him. He's trying to tell him this. If you're going to go unto Jesus, you've got to go outside of the gate. You've got to go and identify with him. You can't stay in the fold of Judaism and come to Christ. You have to turn your back on that, leave that fold, and go outside of the gate bearing reproach. In other words, into his presence is outside the gate. There's no room for compromise when it comes to our relationship with Christ. It's not Christ and baptism, Christ and good works, Christ and church membership. All of that is trying to keep one foot in the gate and one foot outside. It's either Christ and Christ alone or you've not truly come unto Him. I believe there's a lot of lost people in this world today. Lost not because they hate the idea of Jesus, but because they love the idea of salvation through their good works or through their baptism, or through church rites, or through church membership, or through giving to charity, or whatever it might be. The problem is not that they're not leaning on Him, it's that they're not leaning wholly on Him. They've not cast those things aside and looked wholly unto Christ. So I believe what he's saying here is that communion is found without the gate. Look down in verses 15 through 16. We see Christian consecration spoken of. He says, "...by Him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips..." giving thanks to His name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. In other words, He's saying this, I know the temple is pulling at your heartstrings. And I know you have the temptation to go back and to give sacrifices at that altar. But we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat. As far as they're concerned, our altar is unclean, and as far as our altar is concerned, they are unclean. There is a clear differentiation between the fold of Judaism and the flock of grace. They can't have it both ways. But if you want to give a sacrifice, if you want to give to God, here's what you need to do, and he speaks of two things. One, spiritual worship. You ought to praise God with your lips. With your lips. In other words, if we want to do something for God, let us not be ashamed of our testimony. And of the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to do something for God? And listen, there's a lot of things we can do in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the primary thing that we ought to be doing, the first and primary thing we ought to do in service of the Lord is have a testimony that's godly and becoming of the gospel. Then he gives us a second thing. He says there are spiritual works. There are things that God wants, and there are things that are pleasing unto God. And what are they? Well, we could sum them up to say, number one, to do good, we ought to be holy. Holy. And then he says, and to communicate, forget not. We ought to be helpful. Communicate, he's speaking about sharing the reality of Christ with other folks. And that's true not just of the lips, the words that we say, but of the life that we live towards others. And he says, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. He's not looking for a lamb to be slain. He's already had his lamb. He's not looking for blood. He's already got the blood. He doesn't need your baptism. Jesus was already baptized by John in the river of Jordan, identifying with humanity. Listen, He's not looking uh, for your humiliation. Christ was humiliated on Calvary. He's not looking even for your good works, although we should serve and live for Him. He was satisfied with the finished work of Christ on Calvary. He's not looking for any of those things. If we'll live for Him, if we'll testify for Him, if we'll walk with Him, that's what God's looking for. That's what He asks of His people. Verse number 17, Christian concern is spoken of. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I want to move on. But he says, Obey them that have... Plus, you'd run me out of town on a pole if I really spent time on it. He says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. It's funny how we treat being a part of the local body. I always remind people when they get married, and especially when they get married in a church, you've stood at an altar. An altar is a place where we give something to God. It's a place where we make a public testimony. It's a place where we make a public commitment. And you've made a vow, and you've made that vow to your spouse, but you've also made it to God. And never treat it as anything less than that. But we don't do the same thing when it comes to church membership. Isn't that funny? We do the same thing, don't we? I don't know how you do it at your church, but at ours, we bring people forward in front of the altar. And they make a public statement that they know Christ personally, and they join themselves with a local body. And listen, neighbor, whether it's written on paper or not, that's a contract of spiritual proportions. And part of that contract involves three things. He says, first off, you ought to think about the rule of the elder. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. In other words... When God has placed somebody in our life to be an authority and to be a ruler, we ought to respect them as such. Now, I can say this, and let me give you this sort of Surgeon General's warning. I pastor the greatest church in the world. Uh, And listen, I don't mean to talk down about your church, but it ain't near as good as our church. Uh, And I'm sure you love your pastor, but you don't love your pastor the way our people love me. Uh, And I don't know why I have not figured that out. I'm thinking about ordering psychological evaluations for our people, because there must be something wrong with them. But none of this is sourced in any kind of, of axe grinding or bone picking. But it is a biblical principle that we need to understand that Christ is the head. The pastor is the under-shepherd. That's how God's constructed it. And so to disrespect that is to disrespect God's formula for the local body. It's not about that person or personality. It's about God's structure, structure for the local New Testament church. Let me tell you something. If it was the will of God that the janitor be the pastor of the church, and be the head of the church, and him have authority, we ought to respect that. That's not how God structured it. If it was the will of God that the uh, you know person that is responsible for making the coffee at Apollo's course, that's dad usually, so I can say this, that he was the one that should have the rule, then we should respect that, but that's not how God structured it. God planted a New Testament church, and He gave it a pastor. And He said, He is the one that's entrusted. And let us never forget that. We see the responsibility of the elder. And a contract has two sides, right? And both sides have to upkeep it. And something we ought to always remember, and I hope our people remember it, and I trust that they do, and, and every believer ought to remember, that that ruler, that elder, he doesn't just have a rule, he has a responsibility. And he's going to answer for God to God one day for the way that he's pastored that body of believers. No one likes to talk about this. And even as pastors, we don't like to talk about it because it seems like we're poor-mouthing and trying to make ourselves a victim. And certainly we shouldn't shy away from preaching biblical truth. Here's the reality. I'm going to give an account for every sermon I preach just like you are. Every sermon you've heard. I'm going to give an account for the direction of the church. I'm going to give an account in a way that you never will. And as such, I ought to have a sober holiness and reverence in the way that I approach the responsibility and duty of pastoring. And I trust your pastor does as well. And let us never forget that every pastor bears that responsibility. and He also bears the load of it. What ought we to do in reality and in reaction to that? He says the reaction ought to be this. And he gives twofold, the reaction of the individual and the reaction of the elder. He says, they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. I remember hearing a preacher say one time, somebody asked him, they said, how many active church members do you have? And he said, all of them. They said, no, 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 I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But, but, really, I mean, how many active church members do you have? He said, all of them. And he said, surely they're not all active. He said, listen, they're all active. Some of them are helps and some of them are headaches, but they're all active. Amen? (laughs) The truth of the matter is this. The way you receive the authority of your pastor will dictate not whether or not he gives an account and not whether or not he has a rightful scriptural authority. What it will dictate is whether he can rule with joy or with grief. There are days that are easy. There are days that are hard. Some of them are of my making. Some of them are of others. But the fact is, our behavior affects the well-being of a body, and it affects the well-being of a pastor. In talking to that person earlier in the day that was talking about this church, that, and by the way, I I can think of two churches right now, like within, I could just about throw a rock and hit them, that are without pastors right now. And uh, I don't know what the cause is. Uh, I don't know what the reason is behind all of them. And I'm not going to venture a guess to say But statistically speaking, most pastors do not stay where they're at more than two years. Statistically speaking, I think it's two and a half years, actually. That is the typical lifespan of a pastor. And a lot of that is because there's a lot of flaky people in ministry. I'm not going to lie. A lot of people that want it to be easy, and it's not easy. But sometimes it's because they can't bear up under the load. Because they never get to pastor with joy. they pastor in grief all the time. I told you earlier, I pastor the greatest church in the world. And I'll be honest with you, the day I don't feel that way is probably the day I ought to resign. Every pastor ought to believe they pastor the greatest church in the world because that's the only way you can do it. And I believe I pastor the greatest church in the world. And I have so often talked to others about how I can see the hand of God and His blessing and grace in bringing me to this place. Because I hear all these horror stories of pastors and, you know, oh, I can't deal with my deacons, I can't deal with this, and I can't deal with that. And honestly, most of the time I just have to sit there and nod my head because I don't know what it's like. I don't say that to my boasting because this was the church it was when I came here. But I say it to the praise of God that I'm blessed with a wonderful place that I pastor. And I get to pastor a lot with joy. <laughs> I remember when I first started, uh, for the first five years that I pastored, I never took a vacation. And it used to bug people. I could tell it did. And I think I think the reason it bugged them is they felt like I did not trust the church. Like I thought if I went away, it was all just going to fall to pieces or something. Um, but that wasn't the case. Me and, and my wife, we, we didn't have no kids, so our stress level was like nothing. And, uh, and it was easy to get away. And we had some friends that owned a cabin up in the mountains, and, and they let us come up there and stay for free, which is a pretty good prospect when you're, you know, early 20s and pastoring and trying to make it. And so that's what we'd do. We'd go up to the mountains, and I'd come back on Wednesdays and preach. And I think people were glad to see me, but I think they felt like, no, pastor, go, go, you know, which you never know how to take when you're pastoring. You don't know if they're, like, packing your suitcase for you or not. But I would come back, and I'd always tell them the same thing. I'd have person after person would say, preacher, why don't you go take a real vacation? Why don't you get away? Why do you come back? And this was my honest answer, and it was, it was true then, it's true today. I said, I love being with you. I love being with God's people. Now, we've taken longer trips and vacations, and no doubt we will in the future. But when I was 45 minutes away up in the mountains, it was hard to stay away. It was just so much easier just to drive back and be with God's people. If I wasn't here, I wondered how they was doing. I wondered who was in the hospital. I wondered who was sick. I wondered how the meeting went. I just I wanted to be with God's people. I've been blessed to pastor with joy. But so many pastors, that's not their experience because their people won't let them pastor with joy. And it's a constant grind and grievousness just to get from Sunday to Sunday, from week to week, from meeting to meeting. It's not always the responsibility and fault of the people, but many times it is. And you know what happens? Notice what it says at the end of the verse. (laughs) He says, this is why. Because it's unprofitable for you. It's unprofitable for you. You know why a lot of churches don't grow? Because not even the pastor wants to be there. And the church is dying. You can see it on their face when they walk in. They don't want to be there. The pastor comes in. He don't want to be there. They're miserable. They're just grinding through. And there's times that you have to go and and serve out of duty. But there ought to be times that you're busting and bubbling to get there too. And at the end of the day it'll kill a church. I've seen it happen. You know, I found this to be true. You will very rarely see a church with a bi vocational pastor break a hundred people. Because it's everything he can do to just try to get three sermons together and make it to funerals and and weddings and things like that. When I was bivocational, and I worked for a while, and I, you know, I told them last time that uh, the decision had to be made to determine what we were going to do. I told them I, I hadn't been working, but I said I'm not scared to work. If that's what the church needs, I'll be happy to go back to work. And God blessed and and God helped our people to step out in faith. And uh, the the month after they they decided to support me full time, we had the largest tithes we had ever had, because God always honors that. But I've seen that when I was bivocational, I made it to every funeral, every wedding, every time somebody was sick, I preached every sermon, but there was no time for anything else. And it was impossible for the church to grow. You could grow some, but you couldn't have sustained growth. And this is the reason that you see a lot of churches that just rotate pastors year after year after year, and they never get out of that rut because they won't take care of God's man and give him the time and attention to put towards ministry that he needs. The truth is this, the better we are to the man of God, the more God blesses our church, and the better our church is able to grow. And I don't, listen, I don't want to be driving around in Cadillacs. They ain't worth nothing anymore anyway. I don't, I've got all the suits I need. I'm not asking, I'm not peddling for a raise. God's blessed us. We're comfortable. Uh, But I'm saying as I apply this biblical truth, that inasmuch as we revere and support the pastor, God will honor and bless a ministry. I said I wasn't going to spend much time there, and there we were. I want you to notice the conclusion, and we will move rather fast through this, but there's a few things I want to say about it. He gives a word of exhortation in verses 18 and 19. I love how he begins verse 18. He says, pray for us. Pray for us. He requests prayer. God's been burdened in my heart, and it may be what I wind up preaching on tomorrow or Wednesday night to go through and find times. I know of at least one other time in Scripture where Paul says, brethren, pray for us and some things that are worthy of asking prayer. He requests prayer, but notice the reason for it. He says, For we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. But I beseech you, the rather, to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, we don't know whether this is a prison epistle or not, the book of Hebrews. But here's what I believe. I believe Paul was in a situation he didn't want to be in. And he wanted, evidently, to be with these believers, and he could not get to them. What he was saying is this, I'll stay here as long as God wants me here, but prayer changes things, so pray for me. Pray for me. Oh, my, how, how much power is in that word sooner? Sooner. Tells us this, there's a trajectory his life was on, but prayer could change that. I'm willing to stay here, but I'd rather be there sooner, so pray for us. He gives a word of exhortation. He gives a word of benediction, verses 20 and 21. He says, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'll be honest with you, we could spend another 12 weeks and never leave those two verses. And so I must hasten myself through them. He speaks of the glory of God's person. He calls him the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus the God of peace and of power. In other words, to their tumultuous lives, God could speak peace. He speaks the glory of His provision. He says that brought again that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. I wrote these two things down because I thought they were fascinating. He speaks of a uh, of of the basis, or He speaks of the person, I'm sorry, the person of our security. He says, the great shepherd of the sheep. And then he speaks of the premise of our security. He says, the blood of the everlasting covenant. And I thought this was interesting, and I just want to share it with you. In the Old Testament, uh, the focus was on the fold. But in the New Testament, the focus isn't on the fold, it's on the flock. The fold is defined by a perimeter, but the flock is dictated by a person. In the fold of Judaism, it was about boundaries, You can't go here. You can't go there. You can't approach unto God. You can't leave. You can't this and that. But once they left, they weren't part of the fold anymore. They were part of the flock. And the Lord Jesus talked about that flock. And John talked about that flock and told them not to fear. And the flock is not about the boundary. It's about the the shepherd. Wherever the shepherd is, that's where the flock is. The flock is, is located by gathering itself around the shepherd. And he reminds them of this, though you're leaving the fold of Judaism, you are leaving it for the flock of the shepherd. And inasmuch as you do that, it won't be based on a place, it'll be based on the person of Jesus Christ. And don't ever forget that wherever you go, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me beside still waters. Yea, though I go walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That's not fold talk, that's flock talk. And he's saying, you'll be centered around the shepherd. He speaks the glory of his power in uh, verse number 21. He says, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And of course, that word perfect means complete, not morally sinless in that sense, but he's saying he'll complete Uh, No doubt these Jewish believers felt incomplete in this moment. They felt lacking. They didn't know where they were going to go. They didn't know what they were going to do. They didn't know what the future would hold. But he reminds them that God's working His will in their life. And so they can steady and establish their hearts because God is in control. And He speaks about the glory of His praise. It's interesting because we go into these verses speaking about the Lord Jesus in verse 20. We come out of these verses speaking about Jesus Christ in verse 21. He says, "...through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen." In the term, the Lord Jesus, it speaks of the divinity of Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And in the term, Jesus Christ, it speaks of His humanity, that He was the Messiah that came to be made an offering for us. And whatever we go through, we have a Savior and a High Priest which, we have, which can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He says we ought to render Him praise, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 22, He gives a word of supplication. He says, and I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation. I'm going to open every sermon that way from now on. That's how it's going to open. First thing I'm going to do, I'm going to step up to the pulpit and say, suffer the word of exhortation. He says, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. It's interesting that He says, I've written a letter in few words, because this is not a letter of few words. Um, certainly, relative to the grand theme that is set forth in it, it is just a few words to say all that he said. But A lot of people believe that uh, chapter 13, or even if it wasn't chapter 13, the passage that we have read from verse 18 down was sort of like a cover sheet for the letter. And he gave it to them that they might read it. And so Paul is saying here, Listen, I've not said much to you, suffer the word of exhortation. I've not asked a lot of you, read it, believe it, obey it. Listen, God's given us His holy word. Let us never treat it as a drudgery and as a burden. Uh, Try not to approach your Bible reading like it's just a duty. Approach it like it's a place you're meeting with God for Him to speak with you. We have a word of information in verse 23. He says, Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom if he comes shortly I will see you. Timothy evidently was free now. And it's interesting what grace can do, because I'm sure it's not lost on you that Timothy was the one that whenever they went to uh, Jerusalem, they wanted to, uh, to uh, circumcise uh, Timothy. And uh, they treated him like a second-class citizen. And uh, Paul did take Timothy and circumcise him. Timothy was half Jewish, and so Paul thought that was okay. Later on, they wanted to do the same thing with Titus. He wouldn't allow him to, because Titus was a Greek. It would have been an utter hypocrisy for him to have been circumcised. But Timothy had been a second-class citizen amongst Jewish communities. But look what grace did. There ain't no fold anymore. There's just a flock. And they're gathered around Jesus, and so is Timothy. And so he's treated as a dear and fellow brother. And then finally, and actually our notes that I've given you are wrong here. It says a word of salvation in our notes, but that was a, a, a misprint. And by the way, it's a misprint in the, in the book, not for me just want to point that out. I get heat all the time for misprints in the bulletin, all right? So I ain't going to take no more heat than I have to. So it was his fault. It was typed out right. But Then when you got to the commentary, it was not a word of salvation. It was a word of salutation. He says, salute them that have the rule over you, and all the saints, they of Italy salute you. And he says in verse 25, boy, isn't it interesting? All this about Jewish and Judaism and the law and the sacrifices and the blood and the tabernacle and the priest... And he says, grace be with you all, amen. Grace. What all rises and falls on the grace of God, doesn't it? If it's not about grace, it's not about anything. (laughs) Listen, if it be of grace, it's no more of works. And if it be of works, it is no more of grace. It's all about the grace of God. I hope you know the grace of God. If you don't, I can introduce you to it through the person of Jesus Christ. But if you do know the grace of God, let us never waver from this walk of grace. Let us never go back to dead religion, but let us go forward unto a city whose builder and maker is God, walking in the grace of God.